Friends and enemies, it's episode 14 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Today, we have an interview with Aaron Beninov, the author of Automation and the Future of Work, an excellent new book that I really enjoyed reading and found to be super informative and provocative. But due to the time change between Ed in Washington, D.C., me in Melbourne, and Aaron in Berlin, we couldn't manage to get everybody in the same virtual recording studio at once. So Ed is going to be taking lead on the discussion with Aaron in this episode, and uh, Ed and I will be coming at you later this week in the premium episode where we'll get deeper into automation, work, and what a post-scarcity world with socialist technology should look like. So subscribe at patreon.com slash thismachinekills to hear that. Now I'll toss it over to Ed's interview with Aaron Beninov. We're here today talking about automation and the future of work with Aaron Beninoff, um, you know, the author of the book, also a researcher right now at Humboldt University. Um, last year, you wrote two really fascinating articles in the New Left Review about automation discourse and trying to think about it, think through it differently, um, critiquing, you know, liberal and left uh, proponents of automation theory, and then working through ways in which we could use labor save or labor efficiency and also automated technologies to work towards a post scarcity world. So I would I'd love, I guess, you know, to start the conversation with thinking about what led you to work on an intervention into this discourse. Was it that you had initially found yourself on one side of this argument um, about what automation was going to do to labor or uh, to jobs, uh, to employment, or was it that you had come into it with ideas that clashed with what the discourse was at the time? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I think something that really differentiates me, and it's kind of in some ways... It's a kind of, what do you call that? Like, uh, in some ways, it's something that benefits me, and in some ways, it's a disadvantage. I'm not coming at this as someone who works on technology. That's just not my field. So, you know, there's going to always be people who know a lot more about artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, I've, I've learned about that stuff, but that's not my trade, per se. That's not where my expertise comes from. Um, I think you really hit the nail on the head with your second option there. Like I, I, um, I'm an economic historian and I work on questions of why there's so many people in the world who need work and can't find it. And so I look at long-term changes in employment structures in you know, exit from agriculture, deindustrialization, various stuff about the service sector globally. Um, and also the history of measuring unemployment, measuring informal work, all the problems with the ways that we try to think conceptually about what I call in the book. Um, because I'm skeptical, a lot of the different ways of conceptualizing it, what I call a low demand for labor. So I work on that more as an economic historian. And then I watch this incredible 
um, explosion of conversation about automation and, uh, you know, trying to explain the very same phenomena that I was trying to explain, right, but in a very different way. And so I think what really differentiates my approach is like I'm coming at this as an economic historian interested in these issues with a sense of why looking just at the technologies isn't going to tell you the real story, right? You really have to look at it from an economic perspective. And that's like a shift that I hope um, people appreciate. Right. Yeah, you know, the, the bringing the economic history made for a really uh, fascinating read because you tell a story that we've all like learned more or less about shifts in, in labor patterns and economic growth in the role of manufacturing, but in ways that challenge the reading that I guess the automation theorists have. And um, so I'd, I'd like to go through that, maybe the core argument you have that, that in reality, when we look at uh, what the labor uh, the automation theorists are saying, which is that automation technology is going to result in, you know, technological unemployment because it's it's going to massively increase uh, productivity and in in a way that will lead large amounts of you know job loss and contraction of um, of job share. That in reality, it's not that these technologies are doing that, but it, that there's been a larger story about manufacturing's transformation as countries around the world build up their own capacity and also a shift in productivity and the growth rates of productivity and the growth rates of output, right? Is, is, that, is that about like the, the, I guess the core argument, or not the, the, the first move in your argument, I guess, right? Against the, automation discourse? Yeah, no, I mean, that was a very good summary. I think that um, I should say, you know, it's, it's a hard line to walk. And I, I try my best to be clear about what I'm saying. And I'll, I'll reemphasize it here. Um, I think you captured well. I'm not saying that automation at some level isn't happening. I'm not saying like there's not really any technological change or that I'm skeptical of a lot of the really big claims about what's going on, obviously. And I think in that regard, I'm similar to other economic historians like Robert Gordon or David Autor who, who think about this topic, right? Uh, but you captured quite well, because what I'm saying is the pace of technological change, at least insofar as it presses on the economy in the form of productivity growth, like the pace of increasing productivity and efficiency in the economy is actually slowing down. It's not speeding up. Um, it looks like it's happening fast because people don't compare productivity growth today to productivity growth before. They look at it, they kind of compare it to, in essence, in a kind of, um, as a background framing, they're comparing productivity growth to the rate of growth of the economy, like the growth of output, as you said. So there's this kind of, it's almost like a relative standpoint problem, right? Like we live in an economy that's growing ever more slowly and it makes it seem like technology is changing the economy at a faster pace. Right. Um, but it's really that the economy is slowing down and it's making these much smaller pace of technological change seem really fast, even though 
that's not what's really going on. And when you look at the history, I mean, when you just compare the growth rates over time, it's so easy to see that. Uh, and, the, and the people who tell the technology story, when you read it from this economic history perspective, you can see how uh, tangled their arguments have to be, right? Like they really have to leap over backwards to um, move from talking about the technologies, like just existing in the technology world, and then trying to import that as a kind of an economic. So why do you think that ends up being? Because, you know, I think you talk about in that, in the first chapter, you introduce like these four counter arguments, which end up being, you know, key stories or, or responses to the key stories that the automation readings of economic history ends up being. Uh, the first one being the decline in the demand for labor in the past decades is not due to unprecedented leap in technological innovation, but technical change and environment of deepening economic stagnation, right? And then the second or you know pushback you have is that this under demand for labor is not mass unemployment, but persistent underemployment, that this you know, world that we live in of poorly paid workers continuing to be, you know, is, is a situation that might prove that the adoption of technology doesn't immediately mean that we're going to have solutions that benefit all workers, let alone solutions that, you know, shore up the fact that they've lost buying power or bargaining power in their own countries. And that, you know, despite all this, the theorists are not, because they've lost sight of the structural, uh, you know, problem, which is this manufacturing of capacity and resulting in that low demand for labor, that they're not proposing like an, a bold enough or a vast enough fix to rectify these things. Why is it that, you know, they're looking at the same history as you might, but they're not reading it or they're mixing things up? Um, I think in a way, it, you know, I feel like I don't prove this exactly in the book. So it's more of an intuition than a hard and fast, you know, evidence-based theory. But there's something, there's a kind of, to my mind, there's, an, there's a kind of interconnection between technological determinism. There's a very appealing theory. Like you just look at the graph of rising processing power and it, and it makes you feel like change is happening as it were kind of automatically, right? There's just this automatic transformation of the world. And there's a kind, in my view, not pratic solutions. Because I think the reason for that connection between technological determinism and technocratic solutions is that if it were the case that this is just something happening technologically, it's just objective facts, like we can all look at it and agree about it, then it should mean somehow in, in their minds that the solutions are also equally just facts about the world. It makes it, le there's less social um, struggle or conflict there's less like uh you know um potential for um uh some people to win and some people to lose it's just here's what's happening we can just look at it clearly and if you look at it clearly you see that these are the solutions that have to be implemented now you know i maybe not that much in the text but the kind of automation theorists like martin ford or even people on the left right um like nick cernishek let's say or aaron bristani saying that people like Ray Kurzweil think they're just techno-utopian, like someone like Ray Kurzweil is a techno-utopian. He just thinks the change is happening automatically. Whereas what defines automation theorists in my typology is that they believe that the social change is not automatic. They think it could be a disaster, right? We could be heading toward a disaster 
it's only this clear-sighted view of what's happening giving rise to this techno technocratic change, UBI, that will lead us away from the disaster. And I think one of the points that you mentioned that I, I make as a pushback is we just already live in the world that they are worried about right. taking place. Like if you look globally, we just already live in a world where tons of people, they've been kicked out of agriculture or they grew up in cities never having any connection to agriculture. And all over the world, there's just tons of people who have a very low demand for their labor. They're not unemployed because they can't access unemployment insurance. They have to work to live, but they're mostly working these so-called informal jobs. Like they are working with technologies that are just outdated already 50 years ago in many cases, right? They're, they're working with very little capital doing jobs like in retail or in making, making small things on their own and in kind of home industry. Um, and that world already exists. And it's not, and, and even though that, as it were, there's a kind of revealing of the reality of what's going on all in all these places around the world, including, I would say, more slowly in places like the US, UK, and in, in the global north as well. And yet it doesn't produce this kind of technocratic impulse to just fix the world, because actually there's a lot of politics here. There's a lot, there's a lot of winners and losers, and there's a lot of power. Um, there's a lot of issues of power at play here that I think that these stories sort of underestimate. Like your, you know, uh, telling of the economic history, which is, you know, for example, when uh, the the immediate historical background for why industrialization happened, right? You talk about how, on the one hand, there was an attempt to, as part of like a strategy, manufacturing strategy, to build up. Uh, infrastructure and, and production, you know, and our communications and transportation infrastructures and productive facilities in other countries, right? But, but also to affect the currencies in like these high income productive nations like Germany or uh, Japan. And, and the, the tinkering of the currencies, I think, is like one important story that I know from uh, my own attempts like understand why rentiers like and and modern form uh, rentier ever present you know they're everywhere essentially right and you talk about how this the the attempts to devalue or revalue currencies and the fights over that both had long-term or both had immediate effects in disempowering workers right um and also had long-term effects and they were trying to they were used as strategies and cudgels by countries to prop up their own manufacturing capacity or to compete with other people in the international market. Would you be able to, I guess, maybe lay that out more for someone listening who who's not, who's doesn't know about that part of uh, the economic history? Because I think it's like really integral, especially to setting up um, this argument and its background. Yeah, so I think that's the part that um, I have the most trouble explaining without being able to point to like graphs behind right. me, right? And kind yeah. of, you know, maybe it's helpful to think in an even longer term. In the 19th century, you know, there were very few countries industrializing. And most of those countries, you know, there were just a few. It was like the US, Germany, the UK, other European countries. Later on, Japan is starting to do it. Um, and it's really hard to industrialize in part because these powerful countries are going around the world. They're colonizing, like, you know, or re-imperializing all these different parts of the world, deindustrializing them, making them into raw materials providers. 
And, uh, you know, industrialization is really contained to a very small number of countries that are able to grow very quickly. Now we're really fast forwarding through World War, Great Depression, there's another World War, decolonization is starting to unfold. And in the post-war period, I don't think this would have happened without really the effects of the wars and the depression and kind of this global catastrophe, um, 30 years war, some people call it, in, in the 20th century. The U.S., which is by that time now the undisputed global manufacturing powerhouse, decides, not all in one go, but in a series of steps in the after, after World War II, to really um, share its technological capacities with its competitors and to create at least some kind of environment in which, at least nominally, you know, and in some real ways, they're going to encourage industrialization in all of these developing countries, right? They're going, that's what they're going to be called now, developing countries, i.e. modernizing, industrializing countries. And they're going to, to some extent, help countries do that. Certainly not as much as they said they were going to, right? But it is a, a feature of the story. And so in the post-war period, for really the first time, you get this incredibly broad-based development and manufacturing capacity across the whole world. All of these countries are, are building factories. And, you know, it, it's a little complicated. Initially, they're really producing for their own markets. And then by the 60s, um, countries around the world are following Japan and Germany down this path toward export development. Right, and, that shift um, from uh, rust to sun, or the attempt to shift from rust belts to, to sun belts, right? Exactly. Yeah. So rust belts are the remainder of the kind of nationally, domestically oriented industry, and sunbelts are the, the development of this integrated global supply chain type um, production. But part of the reason why that happens is because it's already the case by the mid-60s that um, international markets for manufactured goods are beginning to come really oversupplied. And I think it's interesting. There's some disputes about why this happens when it does that I still think are unresolved. But um, one of the clear symptoms of this is that Germany and Japan start to be uh, highly productive enough that they can produce cheap goods that can penetrate previously impenetrable U.S. markets. So Germany and Japan start producing goods that are imported massively into the U.S. Like imports into the U.S. rise by a huge um, factor between 65 and uh, 70 or so. And so um, in that period, the U.S. goes, U.S. firms, the multinationals go scampering abroad to find low wage sites of production. And that's when you get the first so-called export processing zones in places like India is actually one place. But more, the, you know, the big places are um, South Korea and Taiwan. And you get this kind of build out, the build out now of these ever larger and more complex supply chains. And it's all about trying to find a way around an ever worsening competitive situation in industry that never really works. Like it, you know, some companies do well, others do poorly. The, the most uh, well-placed multinationals kind of retreat up the supply chain. So they're, you know, they're benefiting from massive competition among all their suppliers. But when you look at it in aggregate, what you see is that, um, as you said, the sun belts, the growth of these supply chain type industries does not balance out the decline of the rust belts. 
Um, and what that means is you have ever, you have waves of deindustrialization unfolding across the world that start in the richest countries and then travel down to the poorest countries. And by, you know, today, uh, very few countries are able to industrialize. Countries like China that had been growing very quickly, now growing more slowly, um, we're doing it really taking away market share from countries like Mexico and Brazil. Um, and so uh, you have like a very hyper-competitive manufacturing environment where the victories of some countries' firms come at the expense of other countries' firms. And on the whole, industry is just no longer serving as a growth engine. So if you, if you zone out during that whole historical background, there's just the big story is that industry is no longer serving as this um, growth engine, which is what it was. That's what a lot of modernity is kind of identified with, industrialization, industrial employment growth. And that has been, you know, deindustrialization has been happening not only in rich countries, but across the world, even in China in the past um, about seven or so years, six or seven years, they've been deindustrializing. And as that happens, nothing replaces industry as a growth engine. And that's what's generating this stagnation tendency, which just to go back to what we were talking about before, is making it seem like technological change is happening faster and faster. But it's actually this stagnationist trend that we use to kind of measure. It's the yardstick against which we measure productivity growth. If there's any questions about that, I'm happy to answer them. I'm, that's, my, that's my best attempt to give a very short, condensed version of it. I, th I think that that analysis of manufacturing and deindustrialization ends up being like really important because, you know, as you point out in the book, right, manufacturing is a sort of unique engine for economic growth for reasons that, you know, it's, it has massive uh, effects as you scale it up, it ends up producing even more. That also has massive effects on productivity growth. So like in those days when there was, you know, once the, uh, as you talked about the the wars devastated the, you know, industrialized nations, as the empires collapsed and there were no more like, you know, blocks to spreading these technologies and, or uh, driving act or actors driving countries to deindustrialize so they could just pull out resources, right? You have a lot of room to then industrialize, to expand manufacturing, but it hits that cap. And this results in what, ends up being underinvestment. I think the way that you put it was interesting. I never really thought about like manufacturing overcapacity as underinvestment, but uh, the capital is no longer investing it, or it's not investing as much into manufacturing, building it up because it's you know, overcrowded and oversaturated. And that also leads to a reduction in the growth of productivity, labor productivity, right? Because the way to invest or improve labor productivity is to improve in the, in the technologies inside of the actual workplace, which are part of the capital stock um, and part of the you know, manufacturing capacity. And so this, this leads to reverberating effects throughout the entire economy where all right, you have no alternative, you have a slowdown in manufacturing, all these other sectors of the economy at one time or another are dazzling, but they still do not account for the gross output share of manufacturing. So the economy just continues to slow down and slow down. And like you said, that yardstick, the, the yardstick gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So I guess then the immediate question you might, someone might have is like, why then does that not result in a persistent uh, growth of mass in, 
uh, unemployment? You know, why is it that it ends up manifesting as underemployment, persistent underemployment in these recoveries and these bubbles bursting instead of just people getting wiped out and never, ever finding a job again? Yeah, that's such an important part of the story. I think that there's a way that people... I mean, I study this in, in some of my other research. I work on this question of uh, thinking about how unemployment is not really as natural a category as people think it is. I mean, unemployment will spike during recessions because jobs will go away. Uh, companies will fail. You know, they'll shed labor. But people's ability to remain unemployed for a longer period of time depends on their ability to either draw on their own savings, which obviously very few workers have, or to uh, get unemployment insurance benefits. Maybe people know this, the US has really limited unemployment benefits. Like you can only access them for a very short period of time unless um, the government sometimes temporarily extends them, right? But even then they're for a really short period of time. I think the norm is like six months. Um, in other countries, you can stay on unemployment benefits for years. They just change the level. Like you can only stay on the high one for two years, let's say, and then you move to a lower one. Um, and the thing about unemployment insurance is that it's really designed for an industrial economy. It's designed to preserve workers over a brief period when they don't have jobs during downturns with the idea that once the economy picks up, they'll have jobs again. And if you look at a graph, it's very easy to see this. If you look at a graph of unemployment uh, in the US, like over time, the change of the unemployment rate over time, you'll see that in the 1950s and 60s, unemployment spikes are really like spikes. Like the unemployment rate goes up and then in a year or two later, it's down to where it was before. Uh, and over time, what's happened as the economy slowed down, one way of seeing jobless recoveries in the data is to look at how those spikes become wedges over time, like they widen. So the unemployment rate goes up over a longer period of time, and then it takes a really long time for it to go back to where it was. And that process is just um, people being forced to find work, even though there really aren't jobs being made. You know, It's not like the economy is recovering, creating a demand for their labor. They're having to take wage cuts or um, take jobs that don't use their skills or education, right, in order to get by. And we've watched as, say, like health insurance coverage has just declined radically for American workers from private uh, companies. Even college-educated workers have seen an incredible de decline in their health insurance coverage. It's a form of precarity in the United States that's really intense, right? Um, in other countries around the world where there was a stronger unemployment benefit system, uh, countries have responded to this increasing stagnation trend by removing or lessening those benefits or changing who can access them to try to introduce a more US-like system where people are forced to get jobs even when they can't find them uh, very easily. And on the global scale, actually, most workers, most worker, the super majority of workers in the world don't have access to any kind of unemployment benefit and they have very few savings, so they have to work. So, you know, people will tell you around the world, there's like a jobs catastrophe. Like there's so many people who need work and can't find it, yet the official unemployment rate for the world is only around 5%. I mean, it's higher now during the, the corona recession, but during, you know, in 2019, it was 4.9%. It was so, the unemployment rate doesn't really track this problem of labor under demand 
And I call it persistent underemployment. I mean, the reality is it's so many different things. Like workers, um, when, when they have to work, but they can't find a job, they respond in all kinds of ways. Obviously, many underemployed workers are actually working massive overtime, right? They're working many more hours because their underemployment is really about the wages they earn than about the time that they work, right? Um, so that's, yeah, that's a problem that plays out differently in different countries. But since the stagnation started, what we see is countries uh, removing benefits, like removing people's access to benefits, making their work more insecure, trying to push them into the job market, even where jobs aren't being created. It's a very widely recognized um, phenomenon that the unemployment rate no longer tracks the actual demand for labor. Uh, and so that comes back to the story we were talking about before also, because to live in a world of pers persistent underemployment is to live in a world of rising inequality. It's to live in a world that, you know, it's not like you just look out in the world and see, oh my God, huge parts of the population aren't working that need to work. You know, the elites look out on the world and they see all of their servants and they see all these people who uh, a low demand for labor means less bargaining power. And I like to think of it as just a generally less autonomy for workers. Workers have less say over their lives when there's a low demand for labor. So a world with high underemployment is a world where people are kind of more docile in a way and where elites have more, um, more of a say. All the things they want to do in the world, they face much less resistance, right, in making those things happen. Obviously, we see that, that come, there's a blowback to that. We see massive social struggles break out, right, huge explosions of social movements. Um, so that would be an, a, you know, another effect of this process. But when they look at their working world, they see, they see a, a, a workforce that's kind of on the back foot. Yeah, Aaron, I, I actually want to jump in on this for just a moment. Speaking as someone who is not only affected by um, having to be underemployed, my primary source of income is uh, delivering on the Uber Eats app. You know, I lost my job back in March, like right at the beginning of coronavirus. The uh, unemployment situation in Washington state uh, was a bit of a fiasco because it was so antiquated and out of date. From what I surmise is the unemployment rate was pretty, pretty low for quite a few years. So there was really never an emphasis put on updating the uh, unemployment system I fell fell victim early on to a lot of people stealing someone's you know login information and just essentially taking their unemployment put such a backlog on legitimate unemployment claims um, that people weren't getting determinations for three four months I'm really sorry to hear that I mean I you know I I sympathize massively with your situation like I I I wrote a piece right when the crisis started on a phenomenal world blog called Crisis and Recovery. Um, and I can't remember the, the institution right now that put out this document, but there was a pretty extensive um, research done on that problem of the antiquated unemployment uh, websites. And there's, there's a lot of evidence that basically in the aftermath of um, the, the last financial crisis, a lot of states, I, I don't know whether Washington would be a part of this, but a lot of states in the US like purposefully made it harder to access unemployment, right? Like you have these right-wing governments in place or just incompetent governments or governments that believe that people should um, get out there and get a job, right? Uh, and um, the US has among developed countries, 
a particularly low share of unemployed people as measured by the surveys that the U.S. government does, and a very low share of people considered unemployed actually get unemployment benefits because it's so hard here. Um, and yeah, it's like, what a world, I mean, what a crazy world where getting by on these like platform apps is the substitute for unemployment benefits. I mean, it's just, it's a totally insane world, you know, and it's, um, and I think what I, I try to say in the book a number of times that what I like about the automation theorists is that they are really highlighting how bad the demand for labor is. Like it's really, really bad. It's incredible how much these problems replicate themselves all over the place, right? Like, you know, you have designers, you have you have people from all these different areas of life facing these very similar problems that um, there's just, they just find themselves uh, competing for such a small number of jobs with huge numbers of people competing for them. On the one hand, I want to say, like, I really hope that people fight back, you know? And on the other hand, it's clear in America that people are, at least this past year, there's so much um, anger. Uh, and and it, it just seems like it's going to take a lot more of that to change anything, which is really sad and frustrating. Yeah, one thing I think also reading your book made me think about is when you see all these larger macroeconomic indicators, this arrangement seems to have failed on multiple fronts, even for the elites or high income households who are more or less insulated from it. And yet there seems to be advantages to it as opposed to the alternatives, right? Where pursuing the system in the 60s and the 70s allowed them to wipe out uh, left governments and allowed them to wipe out worker bargaining power and union density, even though it unleashed, you know, a global regime of persistent un underemployment, of um, stagnating wages in many places and, you know, social crises and, and tension and in mass immiseration, right? And so I'm curious if from the larger perspective of, on the one hand, like it has resulted in a pretty poor returns on capital, a pretty poor uh, stability, social stability for elites. It's also like a prevented or maybe weakened a lot of the institutions and the forces that would have been able to challenge them? Is this situation advantageous or the best that they can hope for? Is it, is it more desirable for, you know, capitalists at this stage to preserve this pretty horrible global system we have than to even tinker with at the edges or fundamentally what's going on for workers and, and people who are trying to become uh, workers? That's a really interesting question. And I, I could think of a few different ways to respond to it. I think one issue is that um, the, you might say in the era, in the post-war period, especially, um, everyone got into this growth politics, like the politics of growth. And it's obvious why, because it, it suggests that um, you can have a world without anyone losing, you know? It's like, it's a loserless world. If we can, the faster we can grow, the more people can share in prosperity and the fewer 
political questions there are, right? The fewer it's, it was, you know, this guy, Daniel Bell wrote a, a, a famous book called the end of ideology um, uh, in the post-war era, you know, suggesting that economic growth had just kind of cured political divisions and the world that we exist in now of slower growth is a repoliticizing world, right? It's a world of trade-offs. It's a world where some people benefit at the expense of others. Um, and in that world, uh, as returns on capital have declined, um, the, the richest people, high asset value elites have done pretty well because they've managed to take of a shrinking, you know, as the growth rate shrinks, they take more and more of the growth that happens. So the richest people are actually doing really well. Like they've, they've managed to disconnect their fortunes from the fortunes of other people. Um, and that's why I think you're just not going to find very much appetite for change at the top, especially in the United States. Like they're doing really well. I mean, people are talking about this now in the pandemic, right? Like billionaires are just doing extraordinarily well. Like the amount of money they're making is enormous. So yeah, I think Bezos gained 80, was it $83 billion during this pandemic? I mean, that's... <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> yeah, and, it's insane. And so there's something to me very odd about the idea that, um, the idea that, you know, as much as people like in the Financial Times and at Davos want to say, oh, we need to change from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism, yeah. they're basically <laughs> saying that very powerful people who benefit from the demobilization of everyone else in society should voluntarily give up that power, you know, should devolve power to other kinds of people, poorer people, angry people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and first of all, they just won't benefit from that, especially if there, it turns out that more growth is impossible. If it turns out that the wager that all of these Keynesians are making is wrong and that they aren't gonna be able to raise the growth rate, they're gonna be empowering angry people to redistribute income away from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, that's just not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. The idea that the elites are going to on their own, just voluntarily decide in, in, in a situation that to them looks like a powder keg, right? you know, to give right. power to these angry people. It's actually very similar to the way that, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about the South in America. Mm -hmm. Like they, the white Southerners knew that people, you know, that the people they had been oppressing were angry at them. And they were like, would you know, they're not they're not about to empower people. They know have really legitimate reasons to be upset with them. So that's why I think it seems really apparent to me that it's only going to happen through struggle. And even if you think that you want to live in just a slightly better capitalism, you know, if that's your end goal, it makes more sense to see yourself as part of the movement trying to, you know, make more massive change because. That's the only way change is going to happen, in my view. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think it'll take for the U.S. worker uh, in mass try to inflict some type of change on on the U.S. market, similar to what you were talking about with uh, with Du Bois and uh, you know the uh, amount of seemingly conveniences that anyone has access to in this country, 
you know, cable television, internet access, something that just distracts that burning barrel of rage that a lot of us have. But for some of us, it's satiated. What will it take in this country for something like a, a you know, May 68 event that to take place? I would say that, you know, those technologies are double-edged. Like during times when nothing's happening, they're very distracting. I know myself, I, in spite of writing about how distracting internet technologies are in my book, I am myself a victim. Like I looked right. at my phone all the time. And, yeah, they got uh, us. <laughs> my family hates it. Like I, I am like a horrible phone addict. I think I have a kind of undiagnosed ADD and it just fulfills my, my need. But maybe it, it also induces those kind of feelings. It's designed to induce those feelings in the, in the population. But on the other hand, when there are uprisings, uh, those technologies become vectors of transmission, you know, and bring in many more people. So um, people say that the wave of struggles that happened even earlier in the decade, in the past decade, like from 2011, occupied the kind of global Occupy type movement was by some counts already larger than 1968 globally. And some researchers say that if you look at, if you just plot the number of struggles like happening all around the world, they've just increased secularly since then. Like we've just seen more and more explosions of struggle over the past decade. Uh, and 2019 was the biggest one. And then in the US, the, the Black Lives Matter protests or the movement for Black Lives, that's been the largest protest movement by share of the population involved probably in US history. Like since at least, you know, I mean, if you think of the Civil War or something like that, it's kind of mass uprising. Uh, this was huge. It was enormous. But I think that what's missing, and I think that you kind of indirectly hit the nail on the head, is a vision of social change that would, you know, inspire people. And I think, obviously, the movement for um, Black Lives Matter, right, the movement to just render basic liberal equality across, the pop across a racist population, uh, is a huge transformative demand. Um, and, you know, I, I know that a lot of the kind of, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult political question that huge numbers of people are involved in figuring out. Um, I think that generally we need a larger story about all these economic phenomena that we've been talking about. We need a vision for what a convincing account of what the alternative is to the world we live in. And that's why, you know, I'm really inspired by the automation theorists because I think that they are trying to say, hey, look, we actually have amazing technologies and capacities. Like we live in a, in a potentially very wealthy world that can solve climate change, that can, you know, make sure no one goes hungry, that can make people more free. And from a slight change in perspective, this catastrophe could be something really beautiful. And I disagree with them about, you know, how they think that could happen, what exactly they think the end goal is. But I think there's a lot to learn there from their sense of trying to get to a world where work isn't at the center of life. And I myself have been very inspired like them by science fiction and speculative fiction and trying to think through um, what that alternative world looks like. And that, that is actually what my, my new, pro, one of my new projects is, is to really try to think seriously about that, to expand out the last part of the book, which tries to start thinking about this question um, into a larger project. I would, yeah, I would love to hear more also about your, the inspiration 
you have both from the automation theories and also from you know sci-fi I read like you know in the early part of the book you talk about watching you know like the next generation watching these communists basically fly around the uh the uh, galaxy and solving problems and i think that that's a really interesting you know introduction to it and the way in which you also talk about how like it's obvious that these visions have also inspired uh liberal left other left wing and also some of the capitalists even um in their visions of the world like do you do you trace it like immediately to uh, the science fiction, like providing you with a vision of the world that could be, or a vision of the world that could have been but wasn't for one reason or another. So this is in a footnote to one of the chapters. I think it's a really interesting problem in the history of science fiction, which is that Star Trek The Next Generation premieres in 1987, mm -hmm. which is a time of it's neoliberalism, right? I mean, that's like Reaganism is still going on. You know, it's kind of sweeping the world. The Democrats are moving towards that kind of DLC type uh, Clinton uh, Democrats, like neoliberal, you know, Tony Blair, you know, is going to come on the scene. It's like the whole world is uh, moving towards neoliberalism. So how, how was it possible? Where is the cultural uh, background that could give rise to a much more radical Star Trek, like compared to the, the original series, the next generation is much more clearly communist. Um, and it's actually the same year that Ian M. Banks starts writing or publishes anyway, the, the first book in the culture series, which is equally inspiring. I mean, it's amazing to me that those things happen at the same time, right? That they both uh, talk about very similar idea about spacefaring communists living in a kind of post-capitalist, post-money world. Um, though not all of Star Trek The Next Generation in those worlds are, are post-money. So, you know, I, for super fans, I don't want to, you know. <laughs> like the Ferengi. <laughs> yeah. Also the kind of anti-Semitic aspect yes. of that part of the show is very disturbing. But in any case, um, what's really interesting to me is, and I can say this because I managed to acquire a copy. They're very hard to acquire. Now that I have one, I'm, I'll talk about it much more openly. This, um, this duo in the Soviet Union. Their books are amazing. I highly recommend it. They're the Strugatsky brothers. And one of the reasons why they're so famous is because they wrote the book Roadside Picnic that became the basis of Stalker and also more recently Annihilation, like this set of films, right? That was also a book, a series of books. But before they wrote Roadside Picnic, which became the basis of this of Stalker, they wrote a bunch of books in the early 60s that were much more optimistic. Like Roadside Picnic is very pessimistic. It's basically like communism is this zone that is uninhabited by human beings. It's just full of these brilliant technologies that no one can understand. And people's relationship to it is just to go in and like smuggle out these alien artifacts they can't understand. That idea, that vision of communism in Stalker slash Roadside Picnic is like the tiny remainder of a much more expansive concept of communism in their earlier work. So there's a set of uh, short stories that's published under the title Noon 22nd Century, like 12 noon, noon 22nd century. And believe it or not, it's, it's written in the early 60s and it is literally about spacefaring communists, you know, and, um, you know, about their adventures 
Uh, it's a time warp type situation, like people from the 20th century kind of find themselves in the 22nd century, communism's already been achieved. And it's really humorous description of what it is to be spacefaring communists. And they have another book uh, called Hard to Be a God. So I, I just really recommend these books and really want to talk to people about them. They're fascinating. And, uh, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin and Ian M. Banks supposedly were very into these books when they were translated into English. And probably it's this kind of Khrushchev era positive vision of the Soviet Union achieving communism that starts in the early 60s. That's also the topic of a book called Red Plenty. I don't know if people have read that by Francis Spufford. It's about that era. It gives you a sense of the time. Uh, but that is probably the inspiration somehow indirectly for a lot of this neoliberal era spacefaring communist stuff. It's actually weirdly like Russian communist science fiction. Um, that's a really long thing to say, but it's really important to me. I want people to read these books. I will also just say that I think one of the limits of science fiction is while it can tell us a lot about a world where work is not the center of life, they can imagine that kind of world. And among the Ian M. Banks books, I really recommend Look to Windward, which is um, one of his books that's really about the communist world um, uh, in a much more direct sense. Some of the other books take place outside of that, world, outside of the culture. Um, but those, those books tend to uh, black box how they achieve post-scarcity. Yeah. It's either the replicator or it's the mines in the case of Ian M. Banks. And my book is about taking seriously the dream of building a post-scarcity machine in a way, um, but seeing that machine as a social machine rather than a technological one. So it's like we have to build the, the social institutions and infrastructure that if we can get them up and running, generate this experience of exactly what we want, which is security and freedom. Um, that's a social question, not a technological question. And so again, that's what I'm really trying to work on developing. Um, Cause it's very difficult to think about how you do that if you don't have a replicator. My earliest um, forays into sci-fi was through this like far right wing writer who was responding to a Marxist, uh, Olaf Stapledon's um, uh, Last and First Men and Star Maker. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, so I first I read like the ANCAP version of it uh, called Golden Age. And that was like interesting. But I was like, it's I did not like the politics of it whatsoever. And I read Star Maker. And that was such an empowering vision that has always stayed with me. The idea of there's, there's a lot of tragedy in this book as they try to struggle for a civilization where you know social strife is not present and where there's understanding between not only people inside of the society but also outside of it aliens um and also the universe itself and i always i like i agree with you like the black there's always a black box like i always was drawn to this story because even though there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of suffering to get there when they get there it feels that much more empowering because despite everything that happened in the story they're able to reach some degree of of utopia right and i just jump in there on the on yeah, the stapleton yeah. thing of course yeah. so huge stapleton fan mm -hmm. uh and i would just say just as an interjection stapleton in a way is closer to 
the kind of sci-fi that I want, like a like a social vision rather than a technological black box, because he was very influenced by the Guild Socialists. Um, that was a British formation similar to, in the U.S., the IWW. Um, like a very small wing of the IWW, the Guild Socialists, were the, they, were, they were part of a movement called the Shop Stewards Movement, which was like, yeah, the British version of anarcho-syndicalism or IWW in the U.S., Council Communism in Germany. Um, they were trying to think about what it, what it would, how workers would run the world for themselves through these workers' associations. And they were really influenced in turn by uh, William Morris, the news from nowhere. And, you know, with Morris and Peter Kropotkin and these, these figures who to me should be part of the sci-fi canon in a way, but aren't because they're, they're more social thinkers. Edward Bellamy as well, maybe, who, who, um, who uh, Morris wrote his book against. You know, they're, they're sort of, there's like this, there's a fuzzy boundary, right, between utopian and uh, science fiction writing that I think maybe we could explore more. I'm, I love coming across other people who also have read Stapled in, not because like I beat their heads over, <laughs> over with it, but because they found it is always, is always great. Like, like you said, that social vision, I think, is, is, is uh, so key and persists always, you know, because the idea that it's not going to be some smart techno technocratic fix, but us fighting together and building the solidarity is also like half of why that future vision appeals so much, right? Because in this world, with almost all these institutions, social institutions or senses of solidarity constantly being eroded by, you know, the ways in which neoliberalism has reconstructed the culture, it is like, it's hard pressed to find that outside of the few places that they haven't reconfigured for the market or outside of, you know, explicitly leftist or worker dominated spaces. Right. And to see that in, in science fiction is always like really empowering. I think also that engagement with sci-fi pushed you to look at economics and the history of economics. And, you know, I think really the only other economist I know who like talked about, sci-fi explicitly was like Paul Krugman and he talked he talks about how he used to um he wanted to be a psychohistorian like in Asimov's uh series and then figured out you can't do that <laughs> so just became an uh, economist but he wrote this really interesting um investment formula for rates of return on an investment if you were traveling in like relativistic speeds trading between stars. Did the sci-fi push you to economic history or did you get drawn there through other influences? I know you talked also about your dad and his work also being an influence on your early um, life as well. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really exactly put that together like you say it, but I do think of the science fiction that I watched with my dad who was initially a researcher in AI in automation. He worked on um, getting computers to solve logic proofs and specifically the problem of um, how when computers try to solve proofs, they generate like 
long strings of um, what do you call that? Like steps and improve basically that go nowhere or end up in a circular proving and never halt. Mm -hmm. So he was working on uh, that, that problem in the eighties. And then I think really automation uh, funding collapsed because the history of um, the history of both automation and AI is this series of like investment booms and collapses where investors think, Oh my God, we're on the verge of achieving it. And they throw all this money at it and they realize it's a lot further away and then money flows out of it again. Uh, and then he went into working in internet startups. And I, I did some of that stuff as a young man. Like I, I, I did HTML and JavaScript. And back when that was all you needed to know to get a job at a computer company was like how to make a table in HTML, you know, the, uh, the good old days. I never totally connected the sci-fi so directly to my interest in economic history. But of course that makes sense because I was reading books that basically were about really broad sweeping changes, right? Like science fiction often is about, even though it takes place in the future, it often has a kind of historian's attention to the speed of social change, which is sometimes very rapid and sometimes short and can also be caused by interactions between new technologies and new social subjects and stuff like that. Of course, I read the Foundation series as well um, as a young man. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, do you know the book um, Lord of Light? Yes, by, yes, by Zelansky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I, I think also about how rare it is in science fiction to, maybe this is what made the Asimov series so interesting. It's like trying to think about really deep social transformations that probably necessarily have to occur over a long period of time, you know? And, and I think one thing about science fiction that's lacking in a lot of the kind of techno utopian stuff is like an account of the change, like how you got there. Right. Um, and yeah. So, yeah, and for listeners, Lord of Light is um, is the sci-fi story. Which, side note, the CIA used <laughs> in one part in, in the seventies to uh, as a cover story to rescue um, Americans from Iran uh, during the revolution. They said they were going to build a theme park in there and sent them there. Then <laughs> that was their cover story. <laughs> but. Um, Lord of it, it was uh, it's this really fascinating story that takes place far into the future that basically covers like a bunch of humans who have you know reconstituted themselves and the planet into that uh, they are gods and they are gods specifically out of Hinduism and, and you follow like the path of this one individual who was cast out and you know his consciousness kind of sent into their aurora borealis or like, you know, their magnetic sphere, uh, essentially. And he's brought back to try to, you know, revolt against them or comes back to revolt against them. And like you said, that in of itself is such like a, like an intense process as they hint at, it took a long time for them to reconstruct the entire world into them being gods from Hindu um, faith and then creating humans, creating you know, all sorts of races of creatures that are mentioned in the faith to be core parts of the world and then recreating economic and social and political and cultural systems that make that all work. It also reminds me of uh, Dan Simmons. He has um, a duology, Ilium and Olympus, where um, it's on Mars 
and a bunch of humans in the far-flung future, post-humans, recreate themselves as gods, the Roman gods, basically. And they're waging war. They're, they're like playing as the gods specifically in Iliad War, in the Trojan War, right? And they're just like do, having it for fun. And they bring back a literature professor to watch it. And he is both the your POV, your main POV to watch it and see how wild this is. And also to account for like the steps they took to change everything, right? How they terraformed Mars, how they were able to genetically modify themselves to become gods or the technology that they use, the ways in which they recreated the personalities of uh, the heroes in the story, the ways in which like they took time to reconstruct Greek society for these heroes to emerge eventually. Even that, even though it's not a utopian vision by any stretch, right? It is a fascinating one compared to a lot of sci-fi that like, like you said, you know, things do not happen in a vacuum. And a lot of times the sci-fi will cut out everything. It kind of starts in a vacuum to get you as close as possible to the action so that you can look at the world, right? Versus part of the action is like how the world got there because those social forces and those material forces have inherent contradictions in them that will lead to more action later on, right? In some way, you know, we live in a time of potentially quite rapid change, actually, you know? But I think some of the some of the lesson of sci-fi books that try to handle this question is that sometimes um, simultaneously different speeds of change, you know? Some, some change is happening in the background in a very subterranean way that unfolds over a very long period of time and, and moments of very rapid change can be like part of that sequence, you know? And probably uh, getting out of this world of low labor demand and low uh, rates of economic growth and ongoing technical change and, you know, all the rest of it and the super high inequality and, you know, the coming of climate change, like this, it's hard to say, like, you know, how, what the speed of transformation is going to be. And I guess my take is that I'm not, I think optimism and pessimism aren't really the right words for it. It's like to, 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 to try to draw on these utopian energies and science fiction energies to try to imagine or try to put forward a vision of a, of a total of a different world, one that has economic security and freedom that doesn't look like the horrible world we currently find ourselves in. It's really important whether or not, whatever you think the chances are, you know, like we can sit and debate whether we think there's a very high probability that we're going to end up in an emancipated future where technologies are used to everyone's benefit or whether we're going to end up in a world with AI robotic dogs that just, you know, shoot people and make social change impossible. Right. And we yep. become digital peasants and Elon Musk lives on Mars, you know. And prime citizens. Prime yeah, rights. like you don't have to be really optimistic to make the decision to put yourself on the side of the positive change, you know, to try to think about how you can contribute to that and and to be ready to have a sense drawn from science fiction, drawn from history, drawn from all these different places, that change is going to require pretty big social movements and struggles. And to think like, okay, we, have, we want to be part of this. We want to try to take this as far as it can go, because this is how it's going to happen. That's the tradition I come out of. And I, and I you know, politically, I should say. And I think we live in a time where more and more people feel that way, you know, and um, I just hope 
like my book is like a little contribution to clarifying the situation in, in that sense. I think like you said, I mean, maybe a lot of the pieces of it are known. It's just a matter of putting things together and clarifying this is why we're doing what we're doing in a way, you know? And, and, and also trying to, I think more than ever before, when I look at things like people talking about fully automated luxury communism and the Green New Deal, and these are different visions of a positive future that I think we've been lacking for a long time. I think they're inadequate. I don't think those are the answers. Um, but I think that the very fact that people are starting to generate these positive visions, that's inspiring to me. It means that people, there's no longer a kind of nihilism of futurelessness, you know, the idea that there's just nothing. When you look into the future, that's also a theme in science fiction, right? The idea that sometimes you look into the future and you just see the void and you, there's nothing to look forward to. Um, but I think we live in a time of growing radical futurity, I guess I would say. And, and I think that that will turn out retrospectively to be a really important part of social change, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it definitely does. You know, I, I would also ask where you think then with it, when it comes towards like the vision of the future we want, you know, you talk in the book a bit about how you know, there are limits to what the automation theorists are thinking of, for example, Keynesian, right? There are myths that we have about what Keynes' economic program would be able to do to us. And then also after going through the book and explaining why it is there's a low demand for labor, why it is that productivity rates and output rates have declined in their growth. This program of demand stimulus is not really going to get us out. Where then do you see the, the first steps being, I mean, in addition to the social movements, you know, uh, with the post-scarcity world, is it that we need to figure out ways that are both, like you said, social and technological to decenter work from our lives and decenter wage work? Is it figuring out a way to just create more jobs from everyone uh, for everyone? Is it is it you know reducing manufacturing capacity or is it you know figuring out more of these fixes in the larger structural economy or is it you know maybe some eclectic mix of all of them as a step? Yeah, a bunch of points there, all really good ones and I'll I'll try to take them one at a time. On Keynesianism. Uh, big revival of Keynesianism today. I think it's a symptom of living in a world where it just feels like the state has gone insane, right? It's just like <laughs> Americans, especially, but other people too, just think like, well, if there's a big crisis, the state should help people out. That's what they should be there for, you know? And if they're not doing it, it has to be because something has just gone horribly wrong. Um, and, you know, that, that, uh, that perspective makes a lot of sense. And I think the revival of an interest in, you know, a kind of um, left Keynesianism or radical Keynesianism is probably in a lot of ways like a positive development. I will say, I think that the chances for it to work are slim for a variety of reasons. One is the one I already said, like elites are not about to disempower themselves. Um, they're gonna fight like hell to prevent those kind of changes. Two is that I think that the, the problem of under demand for labor, the problem of the structural slowdown is much more structural than the Keynesian story can really capture. Um, 
That is to say that I don't think they can really pump up industry in the way that they kind of inevitably have to be claiming. Also, states have already been doing it. Like the growth of debt in the state um, has been enormous. Uh, and, and Keynesians would have to be pushing ever more radical decenterings of cap of private capital uh, in their account. They'd have to be pushing for a real state-run investment um, type plan. And I think that that is really anathema to the elites all over the world. Um, but more than that, more than that, let me say like, Keynes himself really thought that once we hit this point, which he talked about, he, he was very clear about the idea that eventually we'd hit a situation of what he called economic maturity, which, you know, his American counterpart, Alvin Hansen called secular stagnation. And that's now a revived kind of conversation um, in economics. Um, he said that when you hit that point, you had to reduce work hours. Like that was his own plan, was a reduction in work hours and a dramatic reduction in inequality. Um, and, you know, that's a really hard sell. Like Keynes thought he would be able to convince the elites to, uh, to, to, to implement that plan. And as we've already talked about, it's just incredibly hard to do that. That's a limit of Keynes' own thought. But where he wanted to get to, a world where people don't work as much, they have economic security, instead of just what he called the perverse love of money, um, there were all these other ends and aims that people could have that would be equally valued as business, like art and literature and science. We could all try to live wisely, agreeably, and well. So I think that when people bring up these Keynesian projects to revive the economy, um, they should be pointed to Keynes's own vision of what he thought we should do in this situation, which was very different. And they should admit that they're not really Keynesians. Yeah, um, there's something else. But it's interesting that, you know, like even that term, that economic maturation is not even used. Instead, it's secular stagnation, implying that like we just need the inter intervention of some sorts, uh, of some large enough scale, and we can get back to where we're going. Instead of, like you said, the capitalist era coming to a close, as Keynes felt, and, and needing us to radically shrink, you know, labor, the labor supply, which would harken right uh collapse or a, a, a retreat of a core part of the capitalist dynamics because you need labor or you need workers in the market at least so you can still have information from them about other people's preferences right or you still need them to be involved in the market in one way and if you pull them out if you reduce hours worked if you reduce workers in the economy you're reducing the ability of the market ostensibly use prices to you know allocate resources efficiently yeah, let me say, like, I, I think that is a really good segue to the what was the second part of your question, which is that I think capitalism is really based on workers being um, economically insecure mm -hmm. in some fundamental way. I mean, that's workers' economic insecurity is the condition of a world where very few people make decisions about investment, about how work is going to be organized. Uh, it's a world where you count on most people to show up to work because they're worried that they won't be able to live their lives unless they show up. It's not because they want to go to work. There's very few workers at the top who, are, who have what sort of management theorists call intrinsic motivation, right? They actually love their work and they would do it in any world, you know? Um, very few workers have that. It's really the highest level of knowledge and skill workers who can't be motivated only by money, where 
um, firms reorganize themselves to try to encourage this intrinsic motivation and love of, of work. And um, it's very interesting, like Kropotkin, Peter Kropotkin, anarchist from the 19th century talks about this. Management theorists talk about it today. What workers need to be intrinsically motivated is a sense of mastery, like they have a skill that they're applying. They have autonomy in how they carry out their work and they feel that their work has a larger social purpose. I think that you're seeing Google workers start to revolt because that third leg of that tripod is breaking down, right? Like high-end tech workers are recognizing that what they could understand previously as their work having a social purpose, like they, they really thought that the, the goals of Google and the goals of the world aligned, you know? And now they don't think that anymore. And that means that more of them are getting upset about how the tech world is being run. And we're starting to see more antagonism even from these skilled workers in Google. Um, but my point is that the whole society is based on denying most people that kind of control over their lives because a world where workers had their needs really met uh, is a world where we'd have to democratize all of these decisions about how we work, what we invest in, and inevitably the kind of things that workers, if workers had a larger say over how they work, they wouldn't, they wouldn't put cost effectiveness above everything else, right? They would, they would be concerned about, obviously in today's world, they'd be super concerned about sustainability. They'd be concerned about justice and fairness. They'd be concerned about whether they can enjoy their work, how much autonomy they have in their work, all those things I was talking about before that allow them to be intrinsically motivated and love what they do and see it as serving a purpose. Um, and that's a world of a really massive dev devolution, right? Away from this tiny group of people controlling investment decisions and really having a huge stranglehold over um, what happens in the economy. I mean, the, you know, the high net worth individuals, the like class of capitalists or the super elites, um, they, uh, you know, giving, meeting people's needs and freeing them from insecurity would very quickly lead to democratization and devolution. And that's what they don't, they can't, they can't allow that. But it also suggests what we need, right? We need to create a world where people do have that kind of security. And once they have it, we're gonna have to also democratize work. Like we're gonna have to change how work is done, how decisions are made. And obviously, obviously digital technologies are gonna be part of that story. And I'm in no, even though I'm a critic of automation, discourses. I'm not a critic of digital technologies. It's just that they have to be serving a, you know, collective democratic social purpose. That's just obvious, right? And, and I, I really want there to be more, I hope that we're already starting or tending to live in a world where there's more tech workers who are, who are thinking about that. And there always have been, right? There always have been tech workers interested in things like open source and, you know, peer-to-peer -peer stuff but how we're gonna build this highly democratized and devolved production system. Mm -hmm. That's what we need to figure out. And yeah. tech won't save us, you know, yeah. that's yeah. true. But like tech subordinated to a democratic social process yeah. is an essential part of the story. Now we the American working population hate the fact that eight hours a day is wasted on chasing the dream of something that isn't us. We may not hate our jobs, we hate jobs in general and don't have to do with fighting our own causes. We the American working population Nine to five, day in, day out. But we'd rather be supporting ourselves by being paid 
like an early lecture of Chomsky's, um, it's part of uh, prepping also for this, you know, it's a essay, I think it's called uh, Government in the Future, and he kind of lists out, you know, like four social visions, classical liberalism, um, libertarian socialism, state capitalism, and then state socialism. And in it, he, invo- you know, he talks about Wilhelm von Humboldt's um, you know, from who's, who's a namesake for your university and, you know, how he was like the classical liberal inspiration for, you know, Rousseau and Locke and, that, and the whole, you know, school of Enlightenment thinkers and how their vision of, um, or his vision specifically of like individuals and the labor and what would be satisfactory for them would, if classically, if actually applied to industrial society, lead to like wildly divergent outcomes. You know, like people who consider themselves adherents to the classical liberal tradition believe in one way or another at the highest evolution, I guess, of that thought would be like the Keynes program, right? Which is that really, or not, not so much the Keynes program as the way that people today interpret the Keynes program. Um, and that we can, if we continue to do state intervention, uh, preserve the dignity of labor and preserve the ability of people to like be, to pursue their own interests within a workplace, even if it's, pri- it's a workplace that's like, you know, authoritarianly decided through hierarchies and strict coercion, methods of coercion, that within that space, that person can be free because uh, they'll have like a, some, some, some implicit agreement a general justice in the society that will like prevent them from being exploited. But as you say, like the core of capitalism relies on this worker insecurity and exploitation. And that comes right up against the fact that like for a, a, for a person to enjoy their thing, they have to have full control of it, right? There, there's a quote near the end of the section where he kind of says, um, what is it? Freedom is undoubtedly the indispensable condition without which even the pursuits most congenial to individual human nature can never succeed in producing such salutary influences. Whatever does not spring from a man's free choice or is only the result of instruction and guidance does not enter into his very being, but remains alien to his nature. He does not perform it with truly human energies, but merely with mechanical exactness. And if a man acts in a mechanical way, reacting to external demands or instruction, rather than in ways determined by his own interests and energies and power, we may admire what he does but we despise what he is because he's not free, right? And I feel like the story of the past century or so is this march towards uh, a future, not, it doesn't have to be, and it's not the only future, right? Where technologies inside of a system that requires profit are being developed, pursued in ways that specifically ensure you can regiment labor in exact and mechanical ways, either to increase its productivity, um, you know, or to increase the output, but not to increase the freedom and the autonomy of the worker, because that would undermine the whole enterprise in the first place. And that doesn't have, that's not a law. That's just like a decision we make because of the, the politics of this thing, right? The political economy is such that, like you said, everything is not democratized. It's, it's controlled by such a narrow group of people, their interests are what dominated and theirs are not ours. I think that that's also, you know, something that was in the original NLR articles that got cut and is in the book is really about this point about um, what some, you know, kind of theorists of technology call like the non-neutrality of technology that 
technologies don't develop down preset pathways. There are always branching choices about how to do things. And we live in a society where the kind of technologies that are going to be developed on a massive scale are going to be ones that ultimately fit with the world that we live in, a world where, as you said, there's like a hierarchy in the workplace and, um, you know, there's limits to the democratic character of, uh, of how things are run, not only in the workplace, but in society more broadly. And so uh, it's, it's obvious that in that way, I don't think that the technologies that we need are the, the ones that are really going to create a world where people work in a free way, like you said, where they have this kind of autonomy and the, and the technology serve them and help them do what they want to do. Um, I don't think we're going to get that world, right, unless there's a pretty broad social transformation. So we can't take things over as they are. Right. Um, but, but it doesn't mean that the, the, the technologies that have been developed don't afford or make possible a much more democratic world if they were changed. Like, I think that example we were talking about before about how things like television and, you know, uh, uh, cell phones and stuff provide like an endless distraction to people is true. But then you see how during moments of social change, they become incredible ways for people to organize themselves and they can transform uh, in all kinds of ways. So, yeah, I think there's something there. I definitely want to live in a world. I think, you know, when you gave those options of like the classical liberal or whatever, you know, all the different forms, uh, I think developing, I think most people know somehow know that now the left's future is something like liberal libertarian socialism. It's like a form of democratically organized socialist future. And um, I think the thing is that, you know, we were talking about Olaf Stapledon being influenced by uh, GDH Cole, who was this theorist of guild socialism. Um, there are all these traditions that go back that try to think about how to organize an advanced technological society in a democratic way. But those visions are inherently limited by the kinds of technologies that they had available to them at that time. And so the future that we would build would, would be one that would want to make use of and seem like um, it really benefited from the most advanced possibilities of our age, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to go backward. We want to invent something new that really appeals to people as a vision of how to get out of uh, this world of insecurity and unfreedom and into a world where we're secure and free and we're able to coordinate with one another. You know, I mean, it, anyone who's participated in big social struggles knows that there are people who, um, who command a lot of authority because they are able to talk a lot. We don't want to live in a world where yeah. <laughs> there's endless meetings and the people who, who are able to stay at the meetings the longest, they have the most stamina for fighting, get to make the decisions, right? That's not the world anyone wants to live in. And uh, I think technologies can be developed that help us reach a more democratic sort of possibility space that actually, yeah, that isn't a world where the people who can stand up at the pulpit and like talk the longest are, are gonna end up having the most power to make decisions, so. And in, the, in those last two, you know, the last part of your necessity and freedom chapter and also in the postscript, I think you kind of lay the outlines or sketches of that post-scarcity world you would want to uh, live in. Would you be able to uh, like walk through a listener who 
who hasn't come across this, you know, I, I, I'm just talking with um, a few friends of mine about this book after I read it. They are themselves like, I guess their conception of automation is, you know, more closely hedged to Yang's as he talked about it in the very early parts of the book and throughout. The idea of going through all that made sense to them, but there was surprise on their part about the idea of then using this technology, if it's not resulting in this nightmare scenario because we already live in it, to then really radically transform the world. So I think, yeah, what, you know, what for you are the outlines of this post-scarcity world? So let's see. I mean, in a way it's, there's a simple version and then there's a really complicated version, right? So the simple version is like, we take over the work that does still have to be done. That's actually important and serves a social purpose. And we uh, redistribute it, right? And and that's going to involve obviously a lot of training and retraining, people leaving jobs, some very high-powered jobs that actually are just terrible that no one would want to do and that serve a really negative purpose. Um, You know, a lot of lawyer jobs and accountant jobs and, you know, management jobs um, that I think people actually really hate and they only do because they earn them a lot of money and they kind of get stuck in them, right? Um, but anyway, a lot of jobs are going to disappear at that end. There's a lot of jobs, so many people working as security guards in our society. I mean, it's so horrible that that's one of the big growth industries, right? So there's like, obviously from the top to the bottom, there's all kinds of jobs that are going to go away. There are tons of people who don't have enough work, you know, who don't work that much, um, who are actually going to end up having more meaningful work to do. And other people who currently do meaningful work, like nurses and teachers who are overworked all the time, who are going to work less. Right. So we're going to reorganize and redistribute work. Um, Also, a lot of work that's currently still the hidden abode of um, women's work. Right. There's tons of domestic labor that uh, is totally horrible um, and could be organized differently and be less alienating. Um, So one part of it is reorganizing work, redistributing work also globally. The second part is creating a very large part of what we make that takes the form of free giving. So people just have access to it. They don't have to pay to go on public transportation. They're provided with housing. Um, and you know, you, you create a world, healthcare, education, food, a world where many more things are just part of the social infrastructure of the world, right? They're just the background conditions that everyone can access like public parks and libraries that principle really extended to a much wider range of um, necessities that in some way really free people from this pervasive, all-encompassing economic security and let them really participate in society as free individuals who actually, you know, agree to go along with things and participate because they're doing it from a position of freedom, not because of this kind of gun to their heads of material insecurity. So reduction of work, free giving of goods and services, and um, the creation then of a realm of freedom where people really beyond the work that, you know, we ask everyone to do, which would of course be modulated for all different kinds of reasons, people who are differently abled, people who have to take periods of time off of work for all different kinds of reasons. There's a lot of adjustments around all of this stuff. Um, but generally people would work less than, you know, the, than 40 hours a week. And most of these visions, it's somewhere between, you know, 
15 and, and 30 or hours or something like that. And uh, it, would, it would mean that people would have a lot of free time to invest in their hobbies and find all kinds of different associations that they want to be part of. In addition to living, you know, rest and relaxation, there's all kinds of non-work that people would want to do. But I do think that uh, once people have had a lot of rest and relaxation, they're going to find things that they really want to invest themselves in, their passions, their hobbies, the things they care about. And that could be anything from playing in, you know, noise bands to joining consortiums of mathematicians who are solving really basic fundamental problems, you know, as a kind of thing that, that people do. Some people maybe do it as it were kind of professionally, they're teachers and other people are hobbyists and amateurs, right? Who actually probably could come up with really groundbreaking uh, ideas if they had the time and space that would allow them to do that. There's all these geniuses all over the world, right? Who are unable to um, realize their potentials because they're just living lives of backbreaking work that they can't find any exit from. So that's, that's the story. It's like taking over the infrastructures of society, redistributing work, creating larger realms of free giving. There's still a lot of things that are individually, you know, as it were purchased. There's like incomes that maybe vary in different kinds of visions of how people, what kinds of access people have to individual consumer goods. And then the opening up of this world of freedom where people's lives are not determined by economic, not, they're not thinking to themselves like, how am I going to make a living? They're thinking like, okay, I've got, you know, I've got whatever it is, 80 years of life on this planet. Like, what am I, what do I want to do while I'm here? You know, what do I want to see? Who do I want to know? What do I want to contribute to the world? And what kinds of enjoyments do I want to have? That's the world that we can already live in. Like we have the technological capacity within the limits of ecological sustainability, of course, to create a world where people can approach their life as like the open question of what they want to do with their lives. We have that capacity now, but society is not organized to allow the vast majority of people to live that way. Let me just say the slightly more complex version is that you actually have to figure out how you're going to organize the work that has to be done to meet the needs that people have. And that requires you to look into this 20th century debate called the socialist calculation debate or the economic calculation debate and find a really democratic solution to that problem. So I'm, I'm working on this now. It's very difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I have a, a piece that will come out in the next issue of logic magazine that tries to start giving, um, a highly democratic vision of how that, how to work that out, how to organize the realm of necessity, um, which I think is, is something that, yeah, we should, we should come up with a way to use digital tools to really achieve that. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting problem. There's different ways to think about it that I'm interested in. Yeah, um, that piece sounds really great. I'm really excited for that. Morozov's um, treatment of uh, the socialist calculation debate, it was like fascinating because I haven't read uh, leftist discourse around it for a while and it opened all sorts of you know uh things in my mind i can only so i'm excited for yours definitely um you know and i think that's really a great note to end on you know i would you know thank you again you know so much for coming on and talking with us about this especially about the sci-fi you know that's always like i encourage everyone to write down and read every single book that was mentioned in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely essential. You have to read Fabled in 
the Strugatsky brothers, you know, all that stuff. It's mm -hmm. very, it's really, it's very important theory. It's as important as reading, you know, Marx and Keynes. And right. Um, <laughs> I, I think would, uh, Ed and I both, mm -hmm. both, uh, both wrote down all the books that you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we're going to probably get together a reading list. Yeah, even yeah. the ones you've mentioned that I have read, I've definitely wrote them down, like Windward, because I was like, yeah, you know, I, I haven't read that in like so fucking long. Um, I, I wanted to do a reread of Culture Series at one point, but once Elon Musk started talking about it, I was like, I'll, <laughs> I'll wait a little bit. Um, is there... Um, Anything that you all, uh, any additional project, I think that you're working on that you'd like people to check out and also what is the best place for people to go you know, follow you, see more of your work, see more of your thinking. Great. Yeah. So all my projects are listed on my website, which is just my name, AaronBedenov.com. And uh, I'm also on Twitter and I, I try not to make, you know, very many annoying posts. So it's easy to follow me and uh, get a slow but steady stream of science fiction quotes and, you know, uh, analyses of the economy and, you know, uh, uh, updates about different things I'm working on. But yeah, it's really great talking to you. I really loved that we got to talk about not just like the history of industrialization and deindustrialization, but also science fiction and post-scarcity and all the other stuff because, uh, that's really my intrinsic motivation here. You know, that's yeah. the stuff I really love to talk about. Right, same, that's ours. <laughs> that's right along our alley. All right, and uh, with that folks, uh, thanks for listening to another episode, This Machine Kills. I'm Ed, Jeremy as always, and we'll see y'all next week.